Welcome back to the Not Me, Not Today podcast. It's Kenny and Leisha here. How are you doing? I'm pretty good, thank you. How's it going? I am great. Really looking forward to hearing the rest of this story and what a cliffhanger to leave us on in part one. Just a quick rundown of where we're at in the story. Julian Harvey, captain of the sunken Bluebell, has given his testimony, detailing how he was the sole survivor of this terrible encounter. He explained that after a bad storm, which rocked the Bluebell, the main mast of the ship fell straight down through the hull and the second mast was knocked over over the engine room. The second mast hit a gas line in the ship, causing it to erupt into flames, and the Bluebell sank slowly. No trace of this wreckage has been found to this point, by the Coast Guards or the search parties. Ernest Murdoch and Coast Guard Captain Robert Barber, who are in charge of this investigation, along with the owner of the Bluebell, Harold Pegg, are convinced that something isn't right, and a lot of this really doesn't add up as the story is unfolding. Several identified errors and explanations of rookie mistakes from an experienced captain like Julian Harvey just didn't sound accurate. It was enforced that he gave his testimony again, and during this time, the very authorities questioning him are informed that another survivor of this mysterious sinking ship has been found, and it's Terry Joe Duperold. This is the point we're left at. We're all dying to find out what happens next, so let's go. Part two, Leisha, let's continue this story. I'm going to talk about Terry's story now, and how she was found and what really happened aboard that ship. Nicholas Spakadakis, second officer of the Greek freighter Captain Theo, was scanning the water when he saw a white cap that didn't seem to disappear after the cresting of a wave. You liked saying that, didn't you? (laughs) It's my new favourite name, Spakadakis. (laughs) (laughs) So he continued to watch it in the distance, thinking it was some debris bobbing along. But as he got closer, he changed his thoughts to a small fishing boat as he could see a lump in the middle that could be a fisherman. Realising how far out at sea he was, he realised it couldn't be a fishing dinghy. So he summoned the captain to tell him what he saw in the distance. As they got closer, they realised it was not a fishing boat, but an oblong white raft with what appeared to be a small person. That small person was 11-year-old, blonde-haired Terry Jo Duperold. She looked up and waved at them. They couldn't believe what they were seeing and struggled to comprehend what a little girl could be doing out here all alone on a life raft. One of the crewmen took a picture of her looking up from the raft, and as usual, I will share it on our Facebook and Instagram pages. The raft was just two feet by five feet, an oblong in shape, with the middle a netted rope that floated in the water. It is such a good picture. She's wearing these pedal pusher shorts and a little white blouse with her feet just dangling over the side. She doesn't look well at all. Oh, I know. She was emaciated and dehydrated. They halted their ship and sent a makeshift raft over the side. The crew were too afraid to send the usual lifeboat because they were afraid it would displace some water and knock her off the little raft into the sea. They sent down two empty oil drums tied together. Then the captain noticed that sharks had started to swim towards her, attracted by the commotion in the water. They were circling her. The crew member shouted to Terry Joe and told her not to jump, because she risked being lunch. So the crewman on his makeshift raft reached out and pulled her off her little life raft and she fell limp into his arms, exhausted and weak. They hauled them up with rope hoists and Terry Jo looked like death, but she was alive. They tried to get her to stand on deck, but she couldn't and she collapsed to the floor. So one of the crewmen brought her to a cabin and put her in a bunk to sleep and rest. Everyone was speechless. 
No wonder. I think everyone would be. They've just found a little girl floating alone at sea. <laughs> well, they wiped her body down with damp towels to remove the salt that burned her skin and gave her water and orange juice to sip at. They also put Vaseline on her cracked lips. Oh, the sting of that orange juice and cracked lips. Ouch. Oh yeah, ouch. The captain tried to get her to talk and explained why she was out here all alone. But she wouldn't talk and was only able to make eye contact for a few seconds. And even when she did, the captain felt that her eyes were empty. He feared they may have been too late and she wouldn't make it to shore. He wanted to report it to the Coast Guard, but wanted to get her name. Finally, after a few attempts at coaxing the information, he explains why he needs it, and that he wanted to let any relatives know she was alive. Finally, Terry Jo looked at him, shook her head, and looked down. The captain realised this probably meant she was the sole survivor of an incident that had claimed the lives of the rest of her family. Still, he tried to give her hope, saying other ships may have found survivors and they are now safe. But she shook her head and pointed to the water. The first word that barely managed to make it out of her mouth was Bluebell. He asked her if she had any relatives at all that they could contact. She whispered yes, then leaned over and told him her name, that she had relatives in Green Bay. After that, she slipped back into unconsciousness. So did he know about the Bluebell? Had he heard what happened? Yes, he had. He wasn't part of the recovery crew, but he'd heard about it and he knew that he was in the vicinity. So the captain finally told the Coast Guard who he had found, and this news suddenly made Terry Joe the most famous girl in the world at the time. So this is when they heard about it back in the inquiry room with uh, Julian? Yes. They were about to start Harold's testimony when Barber, who worked for the Coast Guard, burst through the doors saying that they had just found Terry Joe. I just want to remind everyone that she survived alone at sea on that raft for four days without food or water. So before we go back to Julian, I just want to continue in this Terry Joe part of the story. Okay. Well, the Coast Guard asked the captain for the location where she was picked up so they could triangulate a search area for the debris of the Bluebell ship and get a better idea of where the boat was when it went down. They then sent a helicopter to pick her up and transport her back to land to get proper medical attention. It was a full Coast Guard rescue too, a dangling basket over the deck that she was placed into by one of the crewmen. She apparently waved at them goodbye as she was hoisted up into the helicopter. Wow, that must have been some sight and experience. Had no one seen her then in those four days? Well, no, they hadn't. Some had come pretty close. The Coast Guard were able to determine that there had been about two or three ships that had passed her, but she was so small that no one had spotted her. Terry Joe said that she had seen ships in the distance and lights at night, but they were so far away she didn't really bother trying to get their attention. The helicopter took her to Miami, which I want to remind you is where Julian is having his inquiry. When she was taken from the helicopter to the hospital, Terry Joe and the doctors were swarmed by the media. Oh, I'd love to have seen Julian's face when he got the news that she'd survived. <laughs> I can touch back on that now, actually. He was shocked and gasped pretty loudly, exclaiming, Oh my God! Which, to be fair, was everyone's reaction. So, whilst there was a bustle of chattering and whispers in the inquiry room, with everyone digesting the information, Julian stood up silently and looked out the window beside his table for a few moments, then just silently walked towards the exit door. 
Murdoch had to call after him and asked him if he wanted to stay for the rest of the hearing. Julian shook his head and left. That is pretty suspicious, all right. Yep, it is. Murdoch and Barbara thought so too. Side-eyeing each other as Julian left, they called the Coast Guard and asked for a guard to be put on Terry Joe's hospital door. They didn't have a real reason, but wanted to do it as a precaution. Did he try and get into her room? No. The following day, a maid knocked on his motel room door and there was no answer. She was cleaning the room, so she let herself in. She began tidying the room and changing the sheets when she noticed a spot of blood on the sheets. Then she went into the bathroom to collect the dirty towels and couldn't get in. It wasn't locked, but there was something heavy blocking the door on the other side. She smelled something foul, and she wasn't a fool, so she screamed to the high heavens. Her manager heard her screams and came down to see what had happened. Even he struggled to open the door. They called the police and an officer was finally able to open it enough to stick his head in. It was Julian, dead on the floor in a pool of his own blood. Wow, she's not getting paid enough to clean that mess. <laughs> Wait for it. The police officer actually knew who he was to see and had spoken with him a few times. So here's a rundown of what happened to Julian after he left the inquiry room the previous day. He got in his car and sat in it for a bit. When he got out, he had a suitcase and a brown paper bag which contained two bottles of whiskey. He left his car, got a cab to a motel and checked in, heading straight to his room. That evening, he drank the whiskey and started to write a letter to an old friend of his, James Boozer. In the letter, he expressed his love for his second son, Lance, and asked to arrange an adoption of Lance by the family that were looking after him in Miami. He said on the letter that he was a nervous wreck and couldn't continue. Julian did not, however, leave any reference as to what happened on the bluebell, no confessions or anything. Oh, that's so frustrating. Very. Everything in the room was neat. The letter was in an envelope placed perfectly in the middle of the table. To the left was a briefcase containing a photo album of Julian's life. The whiskey bottles were placed side by side, standing up in the wicker basket beside the table. His clothes were folded neatly and his jacket hanging from a hook. The suitcase was on the luggage rack. I find this part really interesting, the forensics of it. The police or investigators managed to determine Julian initially intended to kill himself on the bed, sitting up with his back against the headboard. He stabbed himself in the leg then decided that this wasn't the way he wanted to do it, so he put back on his trousers and headed for the bathroom. But wait, not before taking out a $10 note and pinning it to the pillow as a tip for the maid. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. Like, honey, that won't cover the cleaning products, never mind the therapy. Also, before heading back into the bathroom, whilst blood was trickling down his leg, he took out two pictures from his briefcase. A picture of his second son, Lance, and his second wife. So Lance is his second son. Why didn't he mention his first son or any of his other children? Ah, the thoughts of a sociopath. Not you, Julian. <laughs> That's tremendous. <laughs> well, even the way he killed himself was weird. He started to slash everything. Ankles, forearms, wrists, thighs, including his neck. The slashes to his thighs were so deep, it opened up the muscles that allowed you to see the femur. That bathroom must have been a nightmare. 
Don't worry, he left her a tip. Yeah, what a guy. The police were horrified. It was crazy violent. So violent that they dabbled with the thought it was a murder and a staged suicide at one point. So, now a little bit of the psychology here. I know this seems like a true crime episode more, and it is, I guess, but I promise I'll get back to Terry Joe in a minute. I couldn't leave these parts out because I think they're fascinating. The staging and killing of himself pretty much compounded their beliefs that Julian had done something terrible aboard that boat. Not only because he'd killed himself, but because of the violent death that he gave himself. They said that only a monumental amount of self-hatred could cause one to kill themselves in that manner. So, why that level of self-hatred? It was more than possible survivor's guilt, in air quotes. That is so interesting. What actually happened then? I'll get to that now in a second. He actually almost confessed to what truly happened to his friend, James Boozer. I'm condensing this, by the way, because this episode will be long enough. Julian went to see Boozer and was grateful and told this story that seemed too perfectly disastrous. He told it to his son and Harold Pegg, the owner of the Bluebell, too. The same story, word for word. James began to get a bit suspicious and wanted to ask, but he wasn't sure how it would go. Julian came to him drunk one night, lamenting over what had happened. James tested him a little and said that he was sure that there would be another survivor wash up somewhere, and that he hoped their story matched his. Cool, nice and passive-aggressive. <laughs> Isn't it? Well, James tried to remind Julian of their years of friendship and that he could tell him anything. He asked Julian if there was anything on his mind that he needed to get off of his chest. Any feelings of guilt. Then he came out and asked him what really happened aboard that ship. And Julian stood up and asked him to take a vow of silence from what he was about to tell him. Holy moly. Well, Julian started to get a bit uncomfortable and his body posture was nervous and fidgety. His eye started twitching and the stutter was the worst James had ever heard it. He told James that when the mast came down through the boat, it hit his wife and Arthur on the head and they fell into the water. He said that there was so much blood he panicked and just abandoned ship and the next thing he knew, he was dragging Renee's body into the dinghy. James then pressed him about the fire he claimed started but Julian pretended he didn't hear him and was too tired. He laid down on a bed and went to sleep. Both of them were relieved that the conversation was over. Okay, so that's different to his testimony. Yeah, it is. And at first they thought that that might be the real story, because he was a coward and didn't want to seem like one, despite losing his wife and almost the entire family on his watch. But that is not the real story. So Terry Joe, when brought to the hospital, was put into a room with a sea view. A doctor came in, saw that it would more than likely trigger her, and moved her to a room on top of the hospital with a ground view. Shortly after, she was put into a coma to help her body heal. There was no guarantee she would survive. It would be 36 hours before they could properly assess her condition and give a prognosis. On the second day, she woke from her coma, but she was weak and alive. Did she tell them what really happened then? No, she stayed silent and never mentioned her parents or siblings. She liked her doctor in particular and wrote him a note to say that if she was asleep when he came to see her, she wanted to be woken up. Her aunt and uncle rushed to Miami from Wisconsin to be by her side. She also started to receive mountains of fan mail from strangers who had heard about her plight and offered words of encouragement and love. 
Several people even offered to adopt her. Oh, wow. That's so nice. I know, right? And even more incredible, one of those adoption offers came from the doctor who was treating her and his wife, despite the fact they already had seven children at home. Did they adopt her? No. Her aunt and uncle did, but I'll get to that in a bit. Security, as we know, was put on her door and only a certain people were permitted to enter. The designated staff and her aunt and uncle. She didn't come forward with information of what happened and they didn't push anything, waiting for her to do it on her own terms. Well, they think they might have a real story now because Julian gave them two versions. Exactly, so they didn't push, believing that the second story might be the real one. Finally, Terry Joe said she would tell them the story the next day. And they informed the Coast Guard to let them know she would be making a statement. Finally, the real story. I know, it's been a long time coming. I'm sure the suspense is killing you. It really is. The day arrived and she's propped up in her bed surrounded with cards and flowers and a doll that had been sent to her by the captain of the ship that had rescued her. The Coast Guard arrived, ready to take her statement too and hopefully find some sort of closure to this story. Also, I just want to put it here that she had no idea that Julian had survived and was found with her sister's body or his story or the fact that he killed himself. So... The investigators, Murdoch and Barber, were the ones who took her statement. Little did they know the story about to come out of her mouth. Terry Joe told them how the holiday started, where they went, and how they came to be on the boat. She briefly explained the holiday and that everything was happy and calm throughout the week aboard the ship. At about 9pm that night, after their meal with the fishermen that they picked up had gone home, Terry Joe headed to bed and had gone to sleep alone in one of the cabins. Renee, her younger sister, usually slept in the room with her, but this time decided to stay on deck with the rest of the family, Julian and Denny. She was woken by a piercing scream that had penetrated her dreams. The scream was coming from inside the cabin and belonged to her brother Brian. He screamed, Help, Daddy, help! She heard running noises and shoes thundering up and down, then silence. She laid frozen in her bed, terrified to see what was happening. She was still half asleep and wasn't sure if the screams were from her having a nightmare. So she waited for ten minutes in her bed, listening out for other noises and screams. It was silent still, so she decided to venture out of the room to see what the commotion could have been, if it even really existed at all. When she stepped out of her bedroom cabin, she saw her mother and brother lying dead in a pool of blood in the main cabin. Oh my god. Traumatising doesn't even cover it. She struggled to absorb what she was seeing and crept past them on the stairs and peeked out into the cockpit. There, she saw more blood pooled on the starboard side of the cockpit and a knife. Then she saw Julian down along the deck. She called out to him asking what had happened when he turned and ran at her, deranged and his weak eye spinning wildly. Julian reached her and hit her and threw her back down the stairs into the main cabin. He growled at her and told her to get back down and stay there. So trembling Terry Jo went back into her cabin, passing her mother and brother again. Terry Jo was in shock. She heard the water sloshing into the main cabin, thinking it was Julian washing blood from the floors. Only, it began to smell really oily. He was getting ready to set it on fire. Well, the boat was sinking. 
Julian came downstairs and stood in the doorway, just looking at her. He stood there for a few minutes silently, just staring at her with a rifle in his hand, whilst she cowered in her bed. I can't even fathom how terrifying that must have been for her. She's only 11 years old at this point. That's so scary for any age. It was long enough that she noticed the water was really starting to fill the cabin and rise up past his ankles to his calves. He grumbled and turned and left out the main cabin and up the stairs into the cockpit and out onto the deck. She waited until the water rose to her bed and left to try and escape once again, passing her mother and brother who now began to float heavily in the water. She waded through the oily water up the stairs into the cockpit, terrified of running into Julian again. She could see the dinghy and life raft had been launched and were floating along the boat on the port side. He was on the deck standing in front of the dinghy, about to leap. And this part I felt was super strange. But she cried out to him and asked if the boat was sinking. I'm surprised she yelled out anything considering what's going on. So was I. But he told her it was sinking and he threw her the rope to the dinghy and told her to hold on to it. I actually don't know if I'd want to. What an internal struggle that must have been. But when he threw her the line, it slipped through her fingers into the sea. Julian then just leapt into the water and began swimming after the dinghy as it started to float away. But she couldn't see if he caught up with it or not, because it was so dark. So Terry Joe was now left alone on a sinking boat and the water was more than halfway up the stairs. She said that her whole young life she played survival in the woods and thought about what she would do in certain circumstances. It was this and the fact that she became detached from her own body that she was able to think clearly and without emotion. She remembered an oblong cork life float that was strapped to the right of the main cabin. It was still there, and with the water now having risen up to the decking, she had to unknot it from the side of the boat. It had four knots keeping it in place. She, in the remaining lighting from the decking, was able to work out how to undo the knots and release it into the water, Water that had now risen so high, she was starting to float in it. Oh, this is so intense. The pressure is immense. She had to push the float over the roof of the main cabin, half crawling, half swimming, onto the starboard side where she could launch it into the open water. She launched it and clambered off into the cork raft with the rope netting. But at the last minute, Terry Joe was jerked under the water as the bluebell sank, due to a rope that was still attached. Terry says she doesn't know how, but somehow she came free, and she and the life raft popped back up to the top. That is hand of God type stuff right there. Isn't it just? She was terrified that she was now going to run into Julian, who had hopped into the dinghy on the starboard side of the boat. It was black, and she floated in fear that she would bump into him in the dark. Terry explained to them that she hadn't witnessed any disagreements over the course of the holiday, and she'd never seen him annoyed or angry. She said nothing about him seemed off, except that once she saw his lazy eye, and it freaked her out a little bit. Didn't she see him staring at her weirdly, though, when she was swimming in the water? She did, but she forgot to mention it in that statement. They then tried to align certain details with what Julian had said in his statement, starting first with the masts having fallen through parts of the ship. They had not. The sails were loose and whipping in the wind, but they were up. They asked if she saw any other bodies, other than those of her mother and brother. She had not. They asked her if the light on deck was sufficient that, if there had been more bodies, she would have been able to see them. She would, 
however, there were none. These led them to believe that the bodies of Arthur and Denny had gone overboard or they had been put in the forward cabin to minimise the risk of them floating up and being found with injuries inconsistent to the story he was going to tell. They asked her finally about her sister. Had she seen or heard from her at all during this ordeal? She had not, and did not know whether she had been murdered too. Oh yeah, she doesn't know he's been found or anything about Julian or Renee's body yet. Mm. Well, then they asked about the fire. There wasn't one. But she did tell them it smelled a lot like oil in the water, but there was no fire or smoke. The inquiry got cut short when Terry started to lose colour and seemed weak. The doctor called it off when he examined her and told them that her heart was racing too much and they would have to leave as she needed to rest. They pretty much had all the info they needed now anyway. The real story shocked not only the hospital, but the world as the media got their hands on it. Just a brief talk about her floating for four days alone in the raft. She floated in this raft with no food or water. The sun was blistering during the day and the nights were freezing. The middle netted part of the raft was always in the water by two or three inches. And as a result, Terry Joe was always sat in that water. Yeesh. I can imagine the burning of that and not being able to escape it. Mm. Well, at first she kind of liked it because the water was warm and the wind was so cold. She tried to drink any rainwater that fell on her and used it to wipe off the salt from her face and eyes. Also, I just wanted to point to the fact that despite having to face these elements, she's got nothing but four days to play over and over in her head of what just happened to her whole family. Eleven years old. She began to pray to God and pray for protection for her father and sister. At one point, she even fell asleep and was having dreams and awoke to find that she'd actually fallen off the raft, but her arm was still draped over the side, keeping it from floating away. She panicked and climbed back on, wary of falling asleep. Terry Joe also saw a plane at one point that she was certain had seen her, as it flew in a grid over her and circled over her several times. She tried frantically waving at it and even removed her shirt, waving it like a flag to get their attention. They flew down low above her and so close that she could read the writing on the underside. However, the angle it flew at made it such that the pilot didn't see her and flew away. The plane she saw was actually part of the search and rescue crew looking for the blue belt and any survivors. You had one job. <laughs> I know, right? But the search area was massive, 5,000 square miles, and she was just in a tiny little white boat with her white blonde hair and a white t-shirt. To most aircraft and ships, she just looked like another white cap amongst thousands. This is also an interesting point to the story too. So we know she had sharks following her and they obviously didn't attack her. Want to know what this was put down to? The oily water. She had soaked her clothes in it and when she launched the raft, she launched it into an oil slick and they got covered. It was enough to hide the smell of flesh and so she didn't get attacked. Oh wow, that's crazy. So interesting, isn't it? Mind-blowing. This whole story is just madness. <laughs> isn't it? So, finally, the ship picks her up and we're back full circle. So now we can talk about what happened after she survived and gave her statement. She stayed in hospital for a while as she recovered and was protected in her room. She seemed happy and distracted with dolls and other things that the public had gifted her out of sympathy. She was referred to as brave little Terry Joe for a while because she didn't cry and didn't ask questions and everyone else seemed to see that as brave. On November 27th, the Coast Guard returned to get the rest of her statement and clear up any discrepancies in the stories reconfirming with Terry Joe that there was nothing wrong with the masts and sails. 
They then asked her if she thought that he had killed them all. To which she said she wasn't sure. She couldn't tell what they'd been killed with. They asked about the rigging or wires, making it difficult to move around the decking, but there wasn't any ropes or wires that made it difficult to get around. There was no need for cable cutters. As far as they were concerned, her story seemed far more believable than his, and he had killed himself when she was found, which sent alarm bells ringing. They just didn't know the motive. Terry Jo said she took a while to accept what had happened. Even years later, she struggled to truly understand that Julian had murdered her family. She had never seen him be angry or violent. He had only ever been pleasant, and she hadn't seen him murder or harm anyone. He did push her down the stairs and stand in her doorframe with a gun. I know, but she said that because she didn't actually see anything happen, she struggled to really comprehend that it was him. Finally, she was discharged and snuck out through a back door in the morning to avoid the press that had been informed that she would be leaving via the main door in the afternoon. She finally went home with her uncle. In general, the response was great, but as we all know, you get the non-believers, and at first, Denny's brother didn't believe her story, but finally came around to it. Also, another interesting thing here was Denny's brother wasn't a fan of Julian and felt that he had lied about a lot of things, telling his sister that he came from a well-off family when, in reality, he was broken in debt. Julian even said to Denny's brother, who was a small plane owner and pilot, that he could crash a plane and come out alive and split the insurance money. Something that at the time he thought was an offhand comment, but actually Julian's record showed that he seemed to be an expert at escaping plane and boat crashes. Anyway, I want to leave Julian's story here because he's a poo-poo head and we're going to focus on Terry Joe from here on out. Good. Although one question before you leave his story. What was his motive? Insurance money on his wife. He took it out just weeks before her murder. Oh, what a scumbag. You can continue with Terry Joe now. <laughs> okay, so this is the final stretch. After the accident, which is what Terry Joe called it for years, she went to live with her aunt and uncle in Green Bay. They helped her reply to all the people who had written to her after the accident. Whilst living with her aunt and uncle, she tried to create a new life as there was nothing left of her previous one to piece back together. She attended school and made a best friend called Pam. Next door to Pam lived a boy called Gregor, and I'll touch back on him in a second, although I'm sure it's obvious as to why. Terry Jo got very close to Pam's family, and they almost saw her as another daughter and told her she was welcome whenever she wanted. She eventually grew up a little bit more and went to a private school with money that she'd won from an insurance settlement from the Bluebell. Harold Pegg gave it to her happily, although he was successfully sued for hiring Julian without a master's license and paying and treating him as one. Ooh, did you know if Julian lied or did Harold know? I didn't find out. Terry Jo also changed her name to just Terry and tried to distance herself from the accident. Another thing Terry did when she went back was go to her parents' house for one final time, and all she wanted was one item. Please tell me it was that Tarzan suit. <laughs> it actually was. It reminded her of a time that she was a child and played survival. It was her symbol of strength. This part is so important and draws similarities to Mr. Yamaguchi. So when Terry came back and settled down, she never spoke about the incident again. As was common in those times, it was treated as though it never happened. This was done as a method of protecting Terry from reliving the experience over and over again. But the entire town was involved. Literally no one spoke of it, ever. 
Even the children had been taught not to ask questions. Even a psychotherapist she saw asked no questions about the Bluebell ship. Wow, that's so weird. That must have been so hard as well. It was, and as a result, Terry felt that there was always an elephant in the room that she carried with her wherever she went. This was her main reason for wanting to go to a private school away from Green Bay to try and be someone new. But her big sister in school, which I think is like a buddy system type of thing, was from Green Bay and knew Terry. So as a result, it wasn't long before everyone knew who she was and the elephant was back. Reminds me of Gina Giese's story. It does, doesn't it? So anyway, Terry fell in love for the first time, but it didn't last and it broke her. For so long, she hadn't shed a tear and kept her emotions and heartbreak all pushed deep down inside. And when this boy broke up with her, she had a breakdown. Terry said that she'd never cried so much in her life and it was so bad she actually moved back in with her aunt and uncle. She felt alone and it dredged up those fears in the worst way. That poor girl. I know, my heart breaks for her. When she returned, she attended the local high school and started to date Gregor, the boy I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. Gregor had lost his father, so Terry felt close to him because she could relate on some level. Terry decided to go and study Spanish in college and spend some time in Spain, in Mallorca and Menorca. She did this for a few years but never graduated as she changed her mind in her sophomore year. She went to learn to become an x-ray technician. She wanted to help people heal, but the accident left her with a severe fear of blood. It also left her with a fear of dark water, but that's not applicable here. Was she dating Gregor at this point? Yes. They were doing the long distance relationship thing. But she also left college during that course because she missed him so much. In 1971, when she was 22, Gregor was drafted to serve in the Vietnam War. They, like so many, were opposed to the war and tried to flee and avoid the draft. They hopped into a car and headed for Canada, where the Canadians wouldn't let them pass the border. So they turned around, went home, and Gregor was drafted. When he left for war, Terry and Gregor broke up. She realised she felt more obligated to him as a friend and because he'd lost his father than the fact that she was in love with him. But on July 4th, 1971, she met a man called John Safrazimus, whom she married three weeks later. Well, that was quick. In six months, she's run to Canada, come back, broke up with her boyfriend, met someone new and married him. Pretty much. Nice. <laughs> she adored his family. She had a very strong relationship with his brothers too. So much so that despite the relationship not working, they remained people she could trust and count on in times of need, which I will touch on. Terry and John had their first child, a daughter, named Brooke in 1974. But they divorced a few months later. Oh, why? Because he wasn't mature enough to have a family and he'd been cheating on her. But his family felt for Terry, so she stayed with John's brother for a while. Whilst there, she met one of his friends called Spencer. She fell fast and hard, and all three, in some crazy whirlwind, decided to move out together and into a tent in Naples, Florida. What? A tent? Yep. No idea as to why in the deeper details, but they did. It was the 70s. <laughs> in 1975, Spencer joined the army, and in 1976, Terry got pregnant again and married him. Their daughter Blair was welcomed that year. Were they still living in a tent? <laughs> no, when he joined the army, they got accommodation. In late 1979, Terry, Spencer, and the three kids went to Germany. Three kids? She had another? Yes, his name was Brian, after her brother. Oh, that's nice. This is where things began to change slightly for Terry. 
As we discussed up until this point, what happened to her on the Bluebell was never talked about. But this one time in Germany, she went to see a doctor with the children as a checkup, and getting background information, things like vaccines and health conditions, she had to fill out a questionnaire that asked if her parents were still alive. Terry, as per usual, checked no. The doctor innocently asked what had happened to them, thinking it could be medically related. And so she told him. Well, she told him her whole family were killed in a boating accident, but it was the first time she'd spoken about it in 19 years. Oh, wow. Mm. It was one of the doctors in Germany that suggested that she talk to a psychiatrist colleague. So she went and opened up about the whole incident. She felt so much lighter. Terry said that it was like a weight being lifted off of her shoulders. It made her feel stronger. Terry eventually left Germany with the three children and headed back to Wisconsin. She stayed in Kansas with her friend Pam and got divorced from Spencer, who now had a bad drug addiction. After the divorce, she moved back to Green Bay near her aunt and went back to school, where she met a man and married him. This man doesn't have a name because after getting married, she learned he was a convicted paedophile and got arrested for molesting a child in the town. So she fled one final time with her children. I can't imagine how crushing that must all be. You'd be afraid to trust your instincts ever again. Three kids, three divorces by the time she's 33. That's a lot. No shame here. That just must have a lot of serious emotional consequences on you. When she fled from the third husband, she fled to the family of her first husband, who I mentioned she continued to have a wonderful relationship with. One day in 1990, she briefly met a man where she was working who was a really tall, skinny, hairy guy. She even said her first thoughts were, who is this greaseball? She didn't see him again for a few years until she was interviewing for a new job, and he was one of the interviewers. She was hired, and Ronald Fassbender, the greaseball, became her boss. Over time, they became great friends and would talk to each other about everything. Finally, it progressed into more, and in 1995, Terry finally married him. They are still married today, and she is known as Terry Duperold Fassbender. The things Terry's most proud of in her life are her children. She is now a grandmother to several grandchildren, including a grandson named Arthur. In fact, random fact here, but her aunt and uncle who she stayed with, when they went and had children of their own after the accident, they named their daughter Renee Jean after her sister and mother. Oh, that's so nice. Isn't it? But also, I feel it's a little bizarre because if we're out here not talking about it because they don't want her to relive it, what are you doing calling your child after the sister and mother? That's a really good point. <laughs> I mean, it's a touching tribute, but it doesn't really fall in line with the logic they've been applying for some time now. But anyway, Terry now lives in Wisconsin with Ronald. Main interesting fact of this story is because of the Terry Joe Duperold incident, Life rafts and rafts are now bright orange and not white, so they aren't mistaken for white caps. Cool. Yeah, all the life preservers are bright orange now. Yeah, I loved that fact. That's brilliant. So, as for movies, there haven't been any movies made about this yet, although there have been some pretty close ones where the story was definitely the inspiration. Dead Calm was one of them, based on the book, but actually the film bore closer similarities than the book. The only book she ever did was Alone, Orphaned on the Ocean, with her husband Ronald Fassbender and a survival psychologist, Richard Logan. There's a lot of detail on Julian Harvey and his dodgy backstory. True crime buffs, you'd love it. 
You can also get it online in some bookstores and you can get it as an audiobook too. There are some small clips of an interview she did in I think 1999, but I couldn't find any longer versions. You can check those out on YouTube. So yeah, I'm happy to say that's finally it for this week's story of Terry Duperold. Sorry this has been such a long one, but this story was so wild and complex, to shorten it wouldn't do it justice, and to make it longer, well, you might as well get the book at that point. If you'd like to hear more stories like this, click subscribe. Also, don't forget to leave us a review, guys. We'd really, really appreciate that. For the pictures of Terry and the rest of the passengers aboard the Bluebell, we'll put them up on our Facebook and Instagram pages. So to see those, head over to Not Me, Not Today podcast. If you have any mini survivor stories you'd like us to cover, Send them into not me, not today podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay alive. Bye. Bye.